for me, I think a lot of the work that I do really has to do with me trying to comprehend my heritage in general. So it is as much about self-awareness as it is about discovery. So it's not a question of me going searching for myself. I've always had myself with me, but it is a process of comprehending myself. And one of the major selves, of course, is the identity of Emulovedu. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Dr. George Mahashi, a lecturer in fine arts at the University of Cape Town, who was recently based at the Geneva Observatory as part of the Swiss Artists and Labs program. I'll be speaking to George about his work at the observatory and his perspective on the experience as a black African artist who has an acute awareness of his distributed sensibilities as a member of a specific African sociality, the Balobedu, and as an academic and an artist. George was born and raised in Balobedu in the rural northeastern part of Limpopo province in South Africa. He first practiced photography as an assistant to a local itinerant photographer before going on to study for a Bachelor of Technology degree. After working as a lecturer and practitioner in commercial photography, his awareness of the implications of photography as a colonial representational practice led him into studying the intersections between anthropology, photography and fine arts practice, culminating in a PhD in fine arts at the University of Cape Town. George used the space offered by his PhD research to imagine the concept of Kelobedu from his own point of view as a member of an African community whose knowledge practices had been studied and thus marginalized by the colonial academy. Using a combination of unorthodox methods, notably travel and the practice of ill discipline within more established methods such as fine arts play and the participant observation techniques of anthropology, his PhD research challenges the Western representational emphasis in photography, while employing the film essay and developments of the camera obscura to recognize the dream as a Balobedu technology that can foreground Balobedu subjectivity. George, great pleasure for us to have a chance to talk, you down there in Cape Town, me here in Johannesburg. And in this this podcast, I'm particularly interested in your experiences as an artist in labs, but we'll get to that because I think how you approached that and the kind of work that you did in the Swiss lab in 2018 very much comes out of the enormous amount of, of thinking and traveling and exploring practices that you went through in your MA and particularly in your, your PhD which was a PhD by Artistic Research at the University of Cape Town. And maybe we start with you telling me what was your path through photography and particularly your background and your origins as a Molobedu. Thank you for having me. And I guess the best way to give the context, George Mahasha. Masha Bill Yabulovedu Ulove Mudao Do Gina Yano Gina Mulovedu Yabulovedu Ekedolo Cavalovedu Gemokalaga 
travail. So for me, I think a lot of the work that I do really has to do with me trying to comprehend my heritage in general. So it is as much about um, self-awareness as it is about discovery. So it's not a question of me going searching for myself. I've always had myself with me but it is a process of comprehending myself. And one of the major selves, of course, is the identity of Emulobedu. In South Africa, the idea of Emulobedu is, 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 is vague because uh, we are not recognized officially uh, in terms of our language. Our language is not recognized yet. Uh, we'll you know, do something about that but also our cultural practices are still a subject of myth. We are famed as rainmakers, we are famed as great magicians. But for me, understanding what that means is quite important. At the same time, we are framed as great you know, priests, not just in the ritual sense, but also in the biblical sense. Great batandazi or barabedi. Um, so for me, I've always tried to understand what it means to be a Mulobedu, um, which is a complex topic. You know, some people will say Mulobedu is a profession, a disposition. You know, Mujaji's praise talks about the only illness she's unable to cure is the urge to travel. It's the constant road. So for me, that's what my work has always been about can also give you a brief background. I started off as a photographer very young. My mother had a friend who was a local roaming photographer, and he bought me my first camera when I was 11. And I've always serviced my peers uh, at school, you know, the usual pictures of your boyfriend, of your girlfriend, parties. But I eventually became a fashion photographer and during that moment as a fashion photographer, I was, you know, commissioned to make photographs that referred to a glorious African past, an African past that is, you know, steeped in colonial invention and imagining. And for me, when I really came to my own was when I, I tried to see the difference between colonial invention and just the spectacularness of Balobedu despite the invention. So literally what is often seen as a colonial invention has some roots in real, you know, imagining. So for me, I try to imagine uh, Balobedu as very powerful actors that were as much makers and victims of their own capacity to, to create myth. What strikes me hearing that brief background is when you got given your first camera at the age of 11, I understand that was also when you had a particularly powerful dream. And what has really intrigued me in your practice, and we'll certainly explore it more deeply when talking about your PhD, is the sense of exploring vision as opposed to a rather narrow and made permanent and restricted fragment of vision, which we know as the photograph. (laughs) I've always been a dreamer. I'm not a dreamer in the sense of aspirational. A dreamer is if, you know, I dream when I sleep, 
we all dream when we sleep, but some people suffer dreaming more than others. So some people suffer the memory of their dream more than others. So as, as young as I can remember, I've always had extremely vivid dreams. In, in my sleeping state, the images I would suffer would be anything from an awareness of what's happening immediately outside of my room, on my street, in the river that, you know, used to flow quite aggressively, you know, a hundred meters from my house, all the way to what seemed like distant images, a hundred kilometers, maybe sometimes a thousand kilometers away. And, you know, that's just one layer of what I had with me in dreaming. You know, because you dream, you really do practice it. You know, when you dream at that level, as hopefully most people do, you really practice it. So for me, when when I do encounter photography, I don't encounter it with an expectation of permanence, you know, which I understand a lot of people to, to want from photography. They want to preserve a slice of something. For me, photography has always been another way that I could see, another way that I could uh, be present. So when I do pick up the camera, it wasn't to make images uh, for posterity, but rather to just see differently. Of course, the wonder of seeing an image and returning to it is amazing. So for me, I've always encountered photography as part of seeing rather than as part of remembering, uh, which is no surprise because I don't think I make photographs, but I very much use the photographic, the camera. You know, one layer for me, especially growing up with Mr. Mtombeni, his name actually means photoman, or rather means, you know, makers of images, in this case, photographs. He would always have all these apparatus, the filters that he would use to make multiple images, uh, the filter he would use to put you in places that you're not. So I grew up seeing all of these things. So for me, photography has never been about the direct record. Photography has always had an open-endedness to it. And of course, the dream is also open-ended, particularly when you return to the dream over and over and over, which is what happened to me when I was 11. I would have this dream that would repeat, repeat, but advance so ever steadily until it came to a climax and then it receded. And I, it never bugged me again until it happened, until the things that I dreamt happened. So for me, my, my relation to photography has always been open-ended. But at the same time, I, I now at least don't feel bad telling the story. But when I was a child, I came across uh, some discarded negatives. And I printed these discarded negatives, which happened to have been a party that had happened in my neighbor's house, where the whole town had come. And with that moment, I also discovered very free form of photographing. And, you know, with Mr. Mtombeni, the images have always been set up images. You know, he had a studio, which I also worked in for some time. With these negatives that were discarded, they were made in a very 
what we now call snap photographs, you know, in the way that when they look at uh, European photography history, they talk about the personal image or the, the snap photographs. And it was photographs that were taken close, you know, like uh, one image that stays in my, in, in my mind is, is of the photographer so close to a person beating uh, one of those big drums that accompany the trumpets. And that image still, you know, burns in my eye uh, with its magenta and a little bit of green. So for me, that moment also made me aware of the archive because, of course, you take pictures all the time and you keep the negatives. But to encounter negatives that are not yours, negatives that show your mother when she was still young, is very different to encounter the photograph in your grandmother's album. So for me, there's a moment at which those negative add another layer of photography. So photography for me has always been quite open-ended. And when I did become a fashion photographer, a lot of people that came to me always came to me because I didn't look at photography as something that was final but rather as something that was always free. I don't know if I can make such claims about my own work. Maybe somebody should make that claim for me. But for me, the clients that I amassed were people that didn't want definitive images, but wanted images that were free-flowing. But then you had a very different experience of photography when you encountered the archive through anthropological practice and how was that in photography particularly for you as an increasingly if i can say self-conscious molobedu if i can close the loop right the images that made me aware of the archives are one thing you know that kind of is a, a young boy probably 14 15 discovering you know an archives of negative of where he lives being transported 20 years before you were born. So with the fashion photography, because of the way that I approached the Black subject, because mostly I photographed Black people, there was always a way in which you look at them that was reminiscent of how the you know, people in the 1930s and people in the 1880s used to present themselves to the camera without fear. You know, I think the fear that is associated with photography and the gaze is applied later. And for me, when I started photographing, it was for San Godes, which was a fashion house that did some form of reimaginings, recreations of what is imagined as pre-colonial fashion, if one can use such a term. When I started photographing for them, it was with that intention of looking at the subject or being with a subject that is not afraid of me, a subject that's not afraid of being misrepresented. And when I would finally enter the Kriche archive, which was housed at Iziko, here in Cape Town. What struck me was the fact that there was a level of fearlessness. There was a level of agency that our discourse currently discounts. You know, for me, I, I like, I say I like because people would like, would often disagree. I like to think that Valoredi always knew what they were doing. If I, as a child, was so used to images through the dreamscape as I was, Surely, 
my grandparents and my great grandparents and those that came before me could have an imagining of what a camera could do, particularly because at a particular point, an image was taken and immediately developed in the same place. So the distance between the photography moment and the image was not always so great. So people had quite a good understanding of what the camera could do. So delving into this archive was also a way of realizing that the power that we often ascribe to the photographer, especially the colonial photographer, was not always true. And my history as as a person that used to service the local community for photographs, I also understood that the power dynamics was quite flexible. As a photographer, I wasn't always the most powerful. And when I think back to Mr. Mtombeni's clients, they always used to direct him quite specifically. And I can imagine sometimes the missionaries and the anthropologists used to get quite clear directions of how to portray them. So for me, delving into that archive was as much about comprehending a moment about 60 years before me as it was about understanding that one shouldn't buy into the stick one uses to beat a person that used to oppress you, if one can put it like that. So for me, that moment unlocked a difficult terrain because at once I understood how the colonial agents of the 19th and 18th century had power but also at the same time how the people that were subject to that photography also had a different power. There are real power relations that affect photography, but those power relations shouldn't offset other power relations that were reversed. And when I was looking at the Kriche archive, I was looking at it at a time when the discourse that was interested in looking at power relations beyond the all-powerful colonial agent was being challenged and other forms of agency were being articulated. This interest in the archive or the photographic archive became a starting point for your PhD research where you actually were exploring or looking for the possibilities of an archive for the trip that the Berlin Missionary Society missionary, Fritz Reuter, who was based at at Bolubebu, actually took a group to the, in some ways, quite notorious Transvaal exhibition held in Berlin in 1897. And you began that research looking for an archive of photographs that may or may not have existed from that journey to Berlin. It also included, I think, some of your distant relatives. Yeah, my grandparents' grandparents. You know, in in around 2004, I had gotten tired of fashion photography. And at the same time, I had been quite excited by the research behind the work that I was doing for San Godes. So I went to Bulovedu to make photographs of Bulovedu the way I remembered it, but also the way it was at that particular time. And when I did eventually mount an exhibition of those photographs, 
before I could show the exhibition at the Johannesburg Art Gallery, I did the ethical process of taking the exhibition to the people that I photographed to go show them, you know, to go find out their names, to go do all the ethical checks. In that process of showing those photographs to the people I'd been photographing, the anthropologist came up. But more importantly, the question of, I need to make more archives myself because the only regret around the Kreche archive was that it was not made by Mulovedu. But for all intents and purposes, it was a Mulovedu originated uh, project because Kreche was technically invited, even though she was dispatched, her and her husband, Dos Elien and J.D. Kreche. Within that process, there was a moment where because the anthropologists were such an undefensible character, because there was just at that point too much of the disavowal discourse that really, really problematized them, for good reason, of course. I looked for older photographs that might not be implicated in the power relations that could be associated with the anthropologists. So the anthropologists, of course, were state agents. Kreher was married to the nephew of President Jan Smats, you know, and she wrote a lot of policy. So she was, in a way, a very powerful actor, even though in Bulovedu that power did not have the same weight as it did for Europeans. So for me to go look for the Transvaal exhibition was looking for images that implicated a different time in the history of images made of Bulovedu. So to look for Kreche was to look for somebody that had a different power, but not the same power. Of course, Fritz Reuter, the missionary, was a soldier, and he was part of, I think, General Joubert's war council. Again, there was another set of power relations there. But for me, to look for that older archive was also to look for a time when the desire, if one can use the word desire, was different, where Balovedu desired being photographed and the photographer desired to photograph them because by the time the anthropologist arrived, the desire on the subject's part was starting to be, you know, a little bit precarious. So for me to look for images related to the Transvaal exhibition was within that impulse. But the funny story about my research into the Berlin photographs was that in the first month of my PhD research, I found images of the Transvaal exhibitions, photographs, postcards. I found them online and I actually did download them, but I could never find them. They just disappeared from the internet. And later I found out that there was a dispute in copyrights. So, you know, I find the images that I'm looking for at the beginning. But if one can indulge a little bit of a precarious authority, I have a feeling that my interest in Balovedu has always been guided by Kilovedu itself. You know, if one can delve into what Kilovedu is, I've said that Balovedu are great magicians, but Balovedu are also avid dreamers. To get back to the story, me being in Berlin chasing the Berlin archive of the people that went to Berlin, I now truly like to believe that it was a divine intervention, if you will, 
I have a feeling that a lot of the work was not about looking for the photographs, but was about looking for the people that are implicated by the photographs. So, for example, one of the people that went on this trip is Mulai, which is my grandfather's grandfather, someone whose disposition I suffer in terms of when I did eventually start the research. I, I went to see this woman who had written a master's thesis on Midingen, which is the mission station. And, you know, she got really mad at me because I was a petulant youth that didn't really understand what doing research was. And I just got to her and demanded things. And she's like, why don't you ask your grandfather? You know, all the things that you want to know, your grandfather can tell you. And I'm like, what do you mean my grandfather? Of course, my grandfather lives down the road from the mission house. And uh, his grandfather happened to be the first missionary who was black, Kashani Mamadepa, happened to be his bodyguard, if you can call it, you know, bodyguard in inverted commas, in a sense that he saved him from, from being killed. So when I would eventually meet my grandfather and have a conversation with him, about why is it that people tell me to ask him if I want to know anything about, you know, the Berlin group. It's like, no, your, I think it's a great, great grandfather was on that trip. And, you know, he was Sibulai and he never used to sleep because every time he would sleep, he would hear everything. He would see everything. And he spent his whole time just, you know, checking. So he was a vivid dreamer. So for me, to a degree, I think the search for these photographs, the photographs were a metaphor for this avid dreamer. But by the time I arrive at the archive, the photographs had disappeared. And even though the photographs that I was looking for, I find in the archive, I could not see them which is why I like to think that perhaps my journey was not for the photographs because even when the photographs I went looking for were in front of me, I still could not see them. But yet when I hear a story of a rumor of a dream that was had possibly by one of the Berliners, I see that in detail. So for me, there was a blindness that was built into the inquiry. You know, of course, I do work with the archive and I do eventually show the archive. But once I was in Berlin, all the things that took me to Berlin disappeared. Once I was in Berlin, I all of a sudden became a traveler. I was going here, uh, finding this story, going there, finding that story. And, you know, I'm still traveling even today. I recently came back from Ghana where I had gone to see the Black Star Line complex, the Kumasi crew at Knust. And while I saw them, I also met a person that took me to a whole lot of spirit mediums that indicated things that were relevant uh, to the other journey of, 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 of comprehending the people that went. So for me, the, the photograph was a metaphor. And at the end, I end up with a dream, right? And the dream I end up with eventually would take me to a camera obscura. And at that point, I realized that my interest in photography was not about the 1939 fixing of the photograph, but rather about a very complicated seeing machine. 
if I will. You used your PhD, this autistic research PhD at Michaelis. You used that to do what I think was fundamentally a non-academic in the sense of the colonial institution. You didn't take that, but you used the opportunity of this PhD really to imagine in various ways through various forms of primarily artistic practice to imagine the Kelobedu for yourself. Is that a fair characterization of what you did with that PhD? And then we can talk about the radical form that that PhD took. The reality is I did a PhD in its most colonial form, in a sense that while, say, the results that I report on are not what the traditional PhD is interested in, but in terms of the research and the depth of research that I underwent, that was a pure PhD. So, for example, when I began the PhD, I was talking about practice-led, practice-based, you know, all the jargon that plague artists when they try to do PhDs. And uh, one of my supervisors said to me, I think what would serve your project best is if you just did a PhD. Because at the end of the day, what is a PhD? A PhD is a process of devising a method that allows a particular knowing to be articulated. So for me, a PhD was not a bureaucratic exercise, or at least the way that I was encouraged to conceive of the PhD was not as a bureaucratic technical document that makes me employable at a university level. But I was encouraged to look at it as an extended period where I develop a methodology that allows me to report on what I find important and what is important to the moment that I live in. Because I complete my PhD at a time where questions of knowledge versus knowing and ways that we know was uh, asserting itself in a way that was not easy to ignore. You know, like if, if you look at the PhD, the first chapter is really a demonstration that if I was expected to, I could have done an entire PhD in the traditional form. But that invitation of asking the question, what is a PhD? Is it a lengthy document that elaborates at length? Or is it an argument that allows you to do what you need or what you want as an expert? Uh, for me, I was encouraged to, to do the letter, or rather, I resisted. I think Carolyn likes to say that I resisted, no matter how hard they tried. So for me, the PhD became something that was liberated because I didn't have to waste time arguing for why I need to do a PhD as an artist, but rather I just did the PhD. And by virtue of being an artist, that PhD was true to what an artist is interested in. So it does eventually fulfill the artist PhD requirements, but not because I intended to do an artist PhD, but simply because as an artist, I did a PhD. And of course, the ability to do that also comes from the fact that in asserting myself as a Mulovedu, 
and understanding that being Mulovedu is not a performance. You know, it's not something that you put on when the audience come out. I am Mulovedu through and through. I'm also an artist through and through. So whatever I do reflects the interest as a PhD. So for me, what the PhD ends up reporting on, if one can call it that, is the perspective of an artist, what an artist finds important within the discipline of fine art. You know, it's, it's, it's that part where I have to remind myself that even though I've mastered anthropology methodologies, I am not an anthropologist. You know, I'm not a historian. I am an artist and my commitment is in the question of expression, is in the question of imagining, but also coming to terms with that imagining also leads to knowledge in the same way that analysis leads to knowledge. And for me, the question was about who is reading, you know, because the PhD most of the time imagines a very particular type of subjectivity. But for me, the PhD had to imagine me and my subjectivity, another Mulovedu, another artist as the reader. I didn't have to imagine an anthropologist or a history professor as the reader, because no history professor imagines an artist as a reader. Yes, I would encourage listeners to access the, the PDF of the text. But your actual submission consisted of a box, an archive, your own archive, an archive of your artistic practice and your explorations. And it's an absolutely fascinatingly diverse archive and frustrating for anyone who doesn't have access to the box. I think you keep the box, you've shown me, you keep it in your office. It, it's not even with the university library or anything, although presumably that's the least safe place in Cape Town where you could try and store anything. But <laughs> tell us more about the way that you presented this personal archive of your, your process. So the PhD exists as four boxes, actually five boxes. Uh, three boxes ended up with examiners, and the examiners have kept it. And then there is a box meant for the university here, and a box meant for my own archives. But the problem was eventually, how would my PhD be housed by the university, which its imagining of where to store. I mean, the, the imagining has, has changed greatly since I tried to lodge the PhD. Imagines a PhD space as a shelf with a place for a book. The library doesn't even have a, a physical copy of the PhD that you're talking about because there's no way that I would let the PhD separate. You know, I wouldn't let them have the text by itself, but it exists on the net. And subsequently, the university has been working with me through the Digital Humanities Grant to try and figure out ways in which the PhD could be incorporated into the library. So it's not that my PhD is not in the library. It's more a question of there's still a lot of work of imagining how my PhD might find a home in the library. The PhD itself, I like to think of it, it's an archive of my failure. And failure not in a bad way, failure also in a sense that's an archive of my eventual success. 
because it it is a, a series of attempts to find form. You know, the thesis, or rather the text, let's not call it a thesis, the text that is available online is in itself something that was bigger than what it should have been. But the process of not wanting to leave out anything, because for me, the reason a lot of communities are misunderstood, uh, what we like to call marginalized. I don't think Balobedu have ever been marginalized. I think we like to think of them as marginal because, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as the center or the colonial machine likes to think of itself as the center. The narrative, the text, is in itself a refusal to be specific because being specific imagines that there's 10 other people that are filling the other gaps. And for me, Kilobedu would die if I just focused on one thing. You know, it's one thing if I have a chair of Kilobedu and I have 10 students and simultaneously we all work on 10 PhDs that are focused that would be scaffolding for each other. So for me, the submittal of the text as an expanded narrative, the box of archive as an expanded context, is a recognition that for knowledges, for knowings, for ways of being like Lovedu, you need to present it with its many context. And in my case, I am presenting myself and my imaginings of Kilovedu, and all of those imaginings need to be accompanied by some of the things that are important. And, you know, the, the box contains photographs, analog photographs, it contains some slides, it contains a digital platform with images, with tags, and and other things. But what what is interesting for me is it had three envelopes. And for the life of me, I can never remember what the third envelope entailed. The two envelopes that remain, one has salt, a lump of salt, and the other one has copper. And of course, the lump of salt speaks to the reality that in 2010, when I presented my first imagining of Gulobedu in the form of the Rai Lebois exhibition, one of the guests that came to the exhibition before it was opened, and when it was opened, told me that if I really want to understand Valobedu, I should look for Mafadi. And Mafadi is the technical term for salt in Kilobedu. And other histories of Balobedu that I've heard was that a young man who was liable to become the ruler at that particular time left to go look for salt and generally never re returned. But in his path left a series of thriving villages. So that's kind of the founding story of Balovedu, which I'm still chasing. And funny enough, when I did go to Berlin, when I, I searched for Mafadi in the textual archive, the publications that came out had some of the most rarest photographs I've ever come across of Mujaji. You know, so the, there was a way in which I sometimes ask myself whether the reference Mafadi was about salt itself or it was that uh, his name was Mr. Malaji. I can't remember his name at the moment. And, you know, he told me that if you really want to know Valovedu, salt, kiteba, 
and something else that I can't recall immediately at the moment. Follow those things. I've subsequently followed the Kitaba outside of the academy, and you know that's another story for another day. It's a dish that you put interesting things in. But in following that salt, I was put on a particular interest path in a way that tempered what I was researching in the PhD. So for me, the, the quest for salt is very important. But on the other hand, the copper becomes interesting when we come to think about dreams. Because, you know, I didn't realize this until, until maybe a year or two before I handed in the PhD that pretty much I would say 70% of Malovedu wear the copper bracelet. For me, the copper bracelet was something that I had encountered in the PhD but something that I didn't quite understand. And I interred it within the PhD archive as something that needs to be explored in the future. So the archive is not just something past that you need to understand what has happened, but also the future, things that still needed imagining, things that still needed scaffolding, if one can put it like that. And in the case of the bracelet and copper, the work that I've been doing at the intersection of what we call art, science, technology, and indigenous knowledge, if one can stretch it, is in a way trying to create the scaffolding for what was transpiring around the question of copper. And the future of the PhD research really seems to have taken you into this this conjunction of art, science, indigenous knowledges. And you answered that call from the Swiss Artists and Labs program in 2018. And that took you to a residency in an astronomy lab at the University of Geneva. Can you tell us what it was like as an artist, particularly as a black African artist, to arrive in that context, that I would imagine extremely colonial context from the outskirts of the European colonial project. And what did you hope to achieve from this residency? Before I answer that question, I should put a pretext. The decision to answer that call in itself came from a dream in a sense that in one of my dreams, I dreamt of a particular constellation and the location of a water planet, which is what ultimately when I went to the observatory, I thought I would find. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to discover a water planet. Obviously, you know, dreams are dreams. When we pay attention to dreams, a lot happens. You know, recently somebody told me that the dreamscape is a powerful processing engine which sometimes one might think is discounting the the magical nature of the dreamscape. But for me, I dreamt of a particular context. But obviously, because I have a PhD and, you know, I have been a researcher for a very long time, when I answered the call, I didn't just rely only on the dream, but I was able to sort of understand the dream in a way that allowed me to answer the call by requesting a very specific placement within the Geneva Observatory, which was basically their exoplanet unit, uh, where they hunt for exoplanet. 
And of course, when I got there, I thought I'm going to get there. They have powerful telescopes. I'm going to ask them to point it at a particular location in space. And, you know, we're going to find this planet. But at the same time, at that point, I just handed in the PhD. I basically handed in the PhD a month or two before I leave for Geneva. And at that point, the PhD has just been handed in. It hasn't been examined. So I enter the space with a little bit of suspicion because part of the PhD process was running parallel to a process of coming to terms with the reality that as a Mulovedu, I don't walk alone, if one can call it that. You know, I come from a long line of Dingaka. And here we are not talking about Sangomas. We are talking about different types of experts that also included people with expert knowledge of astronomy. So at that particular time, I still hadn't yet understood that within South Africa, historically, the word for a ngaka, a person with a, a doctor, a person with a PhD is the same word for what we like to you know, misunderstand as a traditional healer. But ngaka basically means and someone with expert knowledge, someone that has devoted substantial time to observation, to distilling their observation, to devising methodologies for analyzing and reporting on their observations. So the process of the PhD ran parallel to my realization that I too had this particular disposition, that I was liable to becoming Aka, and I was very wary of what knowledge is sacred and what knowledge is public. But at the same time, I was also very aware, given my family history as, you know, very specifically Christian. And of course, at that time, this question of Christian was also quite difficult because how can all these Christians who are all Dingaka, how do they live with this dichotomy? So I enter the observatory with a little bit of caution where my true intentions weren't being, you know, worn on my sleeve. But at the same time, I was also wary that scientists often do not really have an idea of what artists do. You know, they think we paint, which we do. You know, some people do. And sometimes I have found myself painting. I might be painting the wall black, you know, but I'm painting. Uh, all my work requires, you know, a black room half of the time or a white room, so I'm painting. Um, but for them, they couldn't imagine the complex processes that we go through. So being at the observatory, I was constantly engaged in two, in, in two processes, a process of coming to terms with the science, a process of hiding my understandings drawn from being a person that is liable to be a ngaka. And I say liable to be a ngaka because the training is long. Masking that as scientific inquiry. But at the same time, from Stefan Udry, who was hosting me, there was a push to, to really infect and, and, and mediate to the young up-and-coming astronomers 
the importance of indigenous knowledge. And, you know, Stephen was quite sensitive. He runs the international office of the observatory and he's aware of the politics or the tension between indigenous knowledge and astronomy where a lot of scientists quickly dismiss indigenous knowledge. He was hoping to get me to sensitize and conscientize his PhDs and postdocs to the possibilities offered by different cosmologies. So there was pressure to perform the Ngaka that they recognized from how I conceptualized my submission for the proposal. So, you know, I entered it with all of that tension, but I also entered it as a South African who does not shy away from difficult conversations. So one of the first conversations I have that morning was a discussion about how the character of Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory is sexually harassing the female protagonist and everybody doesn't recognize it as harassment because, you know, he is awkward. But, you know, in reality, what is happening is harassment. And of course, I fall into the trap of mediating this discussion at coffee, which uh, turned out to be a very difficult conversation within the astronomy community. So I enter it with so many hats that nobody can, can fix me. I'm introduced to everyone and I'm assigned, which I'm very glad for, I'm assigned to a cohort of postdocs and PhD students, but I'm also introduced to their supervisors who all of them were just like, I'm too busy, come back later. And through a series of coffees, breakfast, lunch, afternoon drinks, I start to get into real conversations. And for me, how I eventually managed to consolidate all these vying interests, you know, the Naga in me, the curious uh, contemporary person that's interested in how things are made. I converge all my ideas around Credo Mutua. I converge it around Copper, of course. I converge it around his discussions on YouTube, the space between conspiracy theory and what a lot of people think is blasphemy, telling sacred knowledge to white people, as some people often say it. You know, my grandmother always told me to be wary what I tell to Mahoa because they are quite stoked um, in a sense that it is not that you cannot tell, but it's more a question that you never know how that information will be used, is what she was impressing upon me. So with Credo Mutua, I found a way of navigating an interest in science, because when Credo Mutua talks about a magnifying device, which is a copper disc with a very precision-made hole that they use water to turn it into a microscope. And the way he discussed it as technology was very fascinating to me. So all of a sudden, here is a story of Ngaka, who is talking about technology. And around the same time as a bridge, I'm reading a compilation of oral tradition and early 
research by astronomers on South African indigenous astronomy. I can't remember the name at the moment, but the name of the book has Venus in it. I was reading that book, which was also giving context. But also before I arrived, I had spoken to my uncle, who is also quite an avid dreamer and someone that has paid attention to indigenous astronomy. And I told him what my situation was, the dreams I was having. And, you know, he was like, no, what is important is for you to not veer from your road and be at the university because most people that have the dreams that I had, the star dreams that I have, quickly hurry to Moria where they are immediately cured of their dream. And he was like, no, stay with your illness for a while and see where it takes you. And he subsequently then gave me a whole lot of names for constellations and some key constellation. And I discussed these ideas with another colleague, who uh, Kuta Joseph Shai, who is currently writing or doing a second version of the Kilobedu Dictionary. And, you know, he tells me a story about how they used to read the seasons and to determine whether there would be a drought or not. So when I arrived there, you know, first I think, okay, cool, they're going to give me their telescope. I'm going to point it at Orion's belt uh, in that exact spot where I find the water planet. You know, I go there and, you know, I tell them this. Uh, the first day, on my very first day, within an hour of getting there, I basically give a lecture. And one, they're like, uh, you're not going to get time on the telescope. One, because, you know, the telescopes are booked a year or two in advance. All the telescopes have already been assigned. And their science engagement telescope was undergoing upgrades. So even that wasn't available. And then on the same breath, they tell me that, yes, I see. Because, you know, I, I draw the map and I'm saying the, the, the water planet is around here. And then, of course, they tell me in terms of space, how vast that area of space is. So automatically on day one, my project is not feasible. But in talking to everybody, I keep telling them the story of these people that basically look at the stars and see how it flickers and the color it shines as a way of knowing whether drought, rain is happening or is worth making, whether it is worth spending the rain medicine on that season or whether they should just go into emergency rations and not waste the rain medicine on a rain ritual that will not bear fruit. So in those conversations, one of the younger astronomers, astrophysicists or astronomers, Julia Seidel, says to me, what you're describing sounds like the people are reading telluric interference. And for them, it's, it's atmospheric turbulence, which is a horrid thing for anybody who's doing optical observation, land-based optical observations. And at that time, one of the technologies they wanted me to interact with was an adaptive mirror that they were developing to correct for atmospheric turbulence. And I mean, eventually now I realize if I had interacted with that particular project, I would be somewhere else in relation to my dream of an observatory in my hometown. But the discussion around telluric interference led me to a series of discussions around what type of tools. And in surveying the record of what is known 
about astronomical history in South Africa. They discuss how Mutswana, you know, Ngaka, Ngaka Yabula, let's call it correctly, or they say, had a diamond, and they would use that diamond to observe certain stars which would then, you know, indicate to them whether or not rain was happening. And at the same time, there's a discussion around how at a particular time of the year, the bone throwers, which are not always healers, would take their bones and they would put them in particular springs. And looking at how the bones appear, they would be able to tell the seasons and to tell certain types of calamities. So for me, um, I was starting to become aware that there is a culture of instruments, if one can call it instruments, that was being described in these anecdotes that seem like oral tradition, but these were descriptions of technology. A forest that creates a blanket of atmospheric turbulence was in itself a form of a lens that was being used to read the heavens. A pool of water was in its sense a process of observing how how certain types of objects appear which for somebody that has observed that phenomena for a very long time would be able to read that and turn that into an actionable knowledge. So I was slowly becoming aware of the role of instruments, even though those instruments don't look like the instruments that modern science makes. But the reality is all these people were observers and they were all devising means of observing and understanding their observations. So I immediately gravitated to their instrumentation teams. So I I spent a lot of my time talking to them about the work they were doing and then talking to the postdocs who were then troubleshooting, you know, like, okay, cool, if we are talking about atmospheric turbulence, how do you measure atmospheric turbulence? And over a period of three months, What started as questions of, so what painting are you going to make, started becoming a question of, but are you really making an instrument? You know, so at the beginning, there was skepticism. There were people that were eager to tell me that my indigenous knowledge, you know, and the word indigenous, I use it. It's a problematic word, but for me, it's a word that describes something concrete at the moment or something abstract enough for me to use. People that were ready to dismiss my worldview as mythology. So in a process of three months, through a series of discussions, there was a lot of uh, sifting of ideas. Uh, And eventually I ended up with an object that I haven't decided whether it's a microscope, telescope, gyroscope or a dream talisman you know i put it under my pillow and my dreams really do go up a notch so you know for me that's what occurred but if i can abuse the time i recently started uh, convening a science art residency called connect south africa in collaboration with arts at cern pro helvetia and the South African Observatory, so Sarao and SAAO, the South African Astronomical Observatory. 
And in that process, yesterday, just no, two days ago, we went to Hart, yes, Hook, where Hartro, the old uh, radio astronomy installation, was together with two artists, Ian Punel and Camille Hassim. And there was a discussion about the SKA, you know, array of radio telescopes being built in the Karoo, or rather in Carnarvon. And, you know, we were talking about instruments and one of the social scientists working on this project said, I, I don't think I can call the SKA an instrument. It's more like a machine. We actually don't really know what it does. And that took me back to a conversation that had happened between me and the head instrumentation uh, scientist who I had not interacted with, but who every time he was in town, he would come have coffee with me and, you know, find out what I was doing and challenge me quietly, you know, intensely. And at the end, when he saw what I produced, he kept saying to me, but what you've created is not an instrument. And, you know, he'd go into details about how an instrument is something that you design to do a specific single thing. Um, sure, you can use it for other things, but it's, it's, it's designed with such precision that it is geared to do what it's geared to do. But he never took that conversation forward, or rather we never got an opportunity to take that conversation forward. But this new formulation of machine versus instrument has become interesting for me. You know, so for me, did I create an instrument or did I create a dream machine? And if it's a dream machine, what kind? You know, is it a dream machine for under my pillow when I sleep? Or is it a diagnostic tool that allows me to think about technology in specific ways? But anyway, that was a side note. Very good point. This, if I can call it a dream machine, the material that it's made of, is it made of copper? It's made of solid copper. So it was a seven kilogram secular bar of, of what is it, a, a tube cut to about 30 millimeters. And through collaboration with an artisan, one of their technicians, we took a Mapostola, we are in South Africa, I'm not going to translate Mapostola, a Mapostola staff that's associated with seers and people that dream. And I created a hybrid between that staff, it's a staff that they hold, and a um, variable mount telescope. So it's a solid piece of copper that was machine cut. And I mean, every time I look at it, I realize the many different instruments I could make out of it or rather I could adapt it to do. So it's, it's a machine. Well, I'm, now I'm liking to think about it as a machine. As a dream machine, have you experimented with your own dream states using this device? I wouldn't say experimented with it, but yes, I have used it in my dream cycles. It has always proven to heighten my capacity to stay within a dream or be present in a dream you know one of the things that if i go back to the story of my grandfather telling me that my great great grandfather uh, hardly slept is sometimes when you have these visceral dreams they seem so real 
that you think the thing you're dreaming is happening right outside your door. And there's a way in which this instrument allows me to not panic when I'm in a dream. The big question now around that copper disc is, would it be different if it was just a lump of copper? Or whether the design that I've used makes a difference to, you know, for, for me, that's the big question that I have now is, was the design that I chose to cut it in, in a way related to what I needed as a dream amplifier or a dream manager or controller? But that's a curious question. For me, that's, as a dream machine, I think that question is more exciting. Yes, George, it's been a fascinating discussion. And I was absolutely absorbed by your the PDF of your PhD, which I'm aware is, is a very slight abstraction of what the full experience of it is. I hope in Cape Town I can experience it in its material forms sometime. So we'll hopefully be speaking again soon. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's always amazing to delve into my head. I don't do it enough. So thank you very much for the very engaging conversation and focus. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Bits School of Arts, and my guest, Dr. George Mahashi, a lecturer in fine arts at the University of Cape Town. The podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for the podcast is by Lee Rosevear and is used under a Creative Commons license.